Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Starry Indecisis. My name is Cassidy Menard, and today I'm sharing with you an interview that I did with Grima Karya, who is one of six authors published in Volume 28 of Appeal, Review of Current Law and Law Reform, which, if you are not aware, is the University of Victoria's Law Journal. And I like to say that Starry and Decisis is the sister podcast to the journal, um, because we would not be here without the journal. And technically, all of us on the podcast are first and foremost Appeal members. Garima is a recent law school graduate who has an incredibly impressive resume and also some very exciting future endeavors, including a clerkship with the Supreme Court of Canada. Garima's paper, When Words Can Do Justice, Assessing the Novel Relationship Between Legislative Drafting and Access to Administrative Justice in Yukon and Canada, is absolutely engrossing, and it will get you very excited about legislative drafting and economic theory. I loved talking to her, and we are incredibly lucky to have her paper in this year's journal. I hope you enjoy this interview and find it meaningful, and you leave with a burning desire to read her paper as well as the other papers in volume 28. I know that many of our listeners are emerging from exam season chaos, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to our little production. So without further ado, sit back, grab a cup of tea, and take a listen. If you could start off by sharing with us a biography and any highlights of your education and career thus far. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is a really special uh, opportunity for me. My name is Garima. I just graduated from McGill, the Faculty of Law, in December, and my degree is a JD and a, a Bachelor of Civil Law. So kind of like at the University of Victoria, we have a trans-systemic program where we do civil law, common law, and some Indigenous legal traditions. I think I came out of my law degree and I'm still kind of coming out of my law degree feeling very grateful, uh, grateful that I was able to go to law school as the first person in my family to, to go to law school and grateful for everything that I've learned and that I learned very quickly that I love law <laughs> um, and for the experiences that I had. I think I'll, I'll highlight a few. McGill has a bilingual program, so I had lots of opportunities to speak French and English um, in my courses but also just existing in a bilingual environment was really, uh, really enriching and challenging in the best way. And one of the things I got to do sort of related to that is clerk at the Court of Appeal in Quebec, where I was really being bilingual day in and day out, not only in speaking, but mostly in just the files I was working on were, were totally bilingual. Another thing, kind of like you, I was part of a journal, two journals at McGill, the McGill Law Journal uh, and also Contours. And what was interesting about that experience was that I, I got a taste of, you know, being part of a journal that a lot of people know that is, I think, pretty recognized in Canada. So being able to read a lot of scholarship from different legal thinkers and then Contours was, was a very fun project because we welcomed articles that weren't just academic, but, you know, poetry and think pieces and opinion pieces from students and scholars. So 
overall, I got lots of experience working with writers and helping them put their thoughts to paper in the best way. And the last experience I want to talk about, which I think will be the subject of this interview, is living in Yukon for a summer through the McGill Human Rights Internship Program. I I don't want to, I don't want to say this in case it's not true, but I heard. Are you clerking for the Supreme Court after? We don't have to include it if you're not allowed to say it, but... No, I I, we, I would be happy to. I was just, I think I was just kind of shy to bring it up. But yeah, so right now I'm I'm just studying for my licensing exams. But after that, I'll be doing my articling at the Court of Appeal for Ontario. And after that, I will be clerking at the Supreme Court with uh, Justice Kassirer. I, I just can't believe that it's happening. And I'm, I'm really excited. I think I'm going to learn a lot there. That is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you mentioned that you worked with the Yukon Human Rights Commission and that uh, that you lived in the Yukon then. So could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Yukon is a very special place to live. And I think the Yukon Human Rights Commission was a very special place to work. I'll talk a bit about the commission first. The people there, they know a lot and care a lot about the White Horse community and the territory as a whole. Um, and they were just so generous. They shared that knowledge with me. Um, and I got to learn just a little bit because I was I was only there for one summer. And so I think, you know, what you can learn in a summer is, is limited, but um, they were very generous with me in that way. Um, I got to help with uh, their main functions at the commission. So they do human rights inquiries. Um, and I was able to partake in that, which is essentially when a potential claimant or just a person from the community comes to the commission and talks about an experience or something that they went through that they think might uh, call for some kind of human rights law relief. And so navigating the Human Rights Act and the different roles of the commission the things they could do and couldn't do to uh, sort of help out claimants was was a big part of what I did there. But I also got to do some interesting research projects. But I think the best part was just being able to discuss everything I was working on with the people who work there. And they are some of the most wonderful colleagues I've ever had. So I miss them <laughs> very much. And I'll talk a bit about Yukon too, because it's a really unique place. So I'm, I'm a first generation Canadian. So part of that element of my identity is that I'm very curious about Canada. And I think a big reason that I love law is because in every case I read, I learn something about Canada. So while I was at McGill in first year, we were being given a lecture by this professor named Aaron Mills. I know this sounds like a long story, but I promise it'll come back in the end to going to Yukon. But when I was when I was at McGill, Professor Mills, who is an Anishinaabe scholar, and he actually did his PhD at UVic, so maybe you know him um, or know of him, he uh, did this lecture for us about Indigenous legal traditions. And it was the first exposure I had ever had to that world of ideas and knowledge. And in the lecture, he said something that I thought about a lot after. Um, and it kind of stayed with me throughout law school, which is that to actually begin to appreciate Indigenous legal traditions and engage with reconciliation in that process, you can't really learn about it in a classroom. He said, you know, that learning happens outside these walls and on the land. And although I knew and I know that the land is indeed, you know, all over this country, something really drew me to the north. I think it was a part of Canada that I wanted to learn more about. 
I'm from Toronto and I lived in Montreal for eight years. And in those cities and in those contexts, I think we don't really learn a lot about what life is like living in the territories. And I suspected that what I did know might not necessarily be true or might just be one side of a very multifaceted experience. So I decided that I wanted to do some research and see for myself. (laughs) And I was particularly interested in judicial and quasi-judicial bodies and whether or not they operated differently in Northern Canada. And the last thing I'll say is something that I was very aware of, and I'm still kind of wary of, is the ethics of, of going to the North for a short period of time. And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing wouldn't do more harm than good. So I spoke to a bunch of people who lived or are living in the territories before making the decision to even apply for this job. What resulted is the decision that this internship, I could contribute something to it and also hopefully learn something as well. So for those who who might not have read the paper yet, uh, could you summarize your paper's thesis for us? Sure. So this paper is basically about two things. It's about legislative drafting and it's about access to justice. And I'll give a little bit of background because I think that might help contextualize the paper. I wrote it for a class in law school originally, which was the class that accompanied the human rights internship that I did in Yukon. So at McGill, we have this program that gives students the opportunity to do internships focused on human rights in a variety of places, not only in Canada, but outside. And then when everybody returns to to law school, we all take part in this course. And the course, by, by virtue of being a human rights law course, is quite interdisciplinary. So we were encouraged in writing this paper to use material from the class. And so that's why you see if, if you if you've read the paper or people who are listening to this who may read it, that's why you'll see that there are some economists and development scholars in the paper. Um, and I wanted to explore if and how a thoughtfully drafted legislative definition of a broad legal concept as well as the defining process it's, itself, you know, those two different things together, how they could be tools for increasing access to justice, which in the paper, I relate to confidence in the judicial system and the rule of law, particularly in administrative law. And I chose systemic discrimination because there is this provision in the Yukon Human Rights Act that deals with it as my case study, because systemic discrimination has very much been increasing in the public consciousness since I started law school, um, particularly in my first summer of law school in summer 2020 with Black Lives Matter protests and conversations. And then also in summer 2021 when I lived in Yukon. um, And this was more Canadian because we were reckoning with reconciliation in a new way as the unmarked graves were being discovered during that summer. So that was the context that I was existing in when I was thinking about my thesis. Um, And I also have a bit of a background in economics and political science. So I had that economics theory from the course embedded in it as well. And all of that is going to lead me to talk about my thesis, which is um, through this framework, which was the expanded capabilities framework that originally the economist Amartya Sen coined and, and expanded on. My argument is that Firstly, legislative definitions matter, their clarity and their accessibility, you know, the words that we use, where they're located is important for access to justice because claimants specifically are going to be the ones using these definitions. 
So it's important for them, but also for administrative decision makers, because they're the ones who have to interpret the statute. And that's why I think the the focus on administrative law in particular was interesting here, because the decision makers have to do a unique job when it comes to interpretation. So that was the first thing, that definitions matter. And the second thing, the second main argument that I have is that how they're drafted also matters. If legislators include people who are affected or people who may want to draw upon their their definitions in the drafting process itself, you know, not only will the definitions be better suited to, to those people and their access, but I think it would also inspire confidence in the system and strengthen the rule of law. Thank you for that. That was a fantastic summary. I know it's probably very hard to, to try to get it all into one little soundbite. Obviously, reading the paper is really how you get the full picture. I thought then maybe before we moved on, I have here uh, a question about whether you could sort of explain briefly the standpoint theory, which you mentioned a lot in your paper. And then you talked about the expanded capabilities theory as well. And if maybe you could just define both of those for us. So standpoint theory has very much to do with this idea of agency. And I think for, for those who've read the paper, you'll kind of see that agency is another motif that comes up a lot, and the idea of agency in the legal process specifically. So how I used it is in considering public participation in lawmaking as a facet of access to justice. And I think the best way for me to explain standpoint theory is to use Professor Colleen Shepard's explanation, because she has just done the best job at clarifying it for me. Uh, so I'll I'll draw on what she says, which is basically that she explains that this theory affirms that those who have perhaps less power in society, which in this case would be just members of the public and potential claimants, those people have experiential knowledge that is often unavailable to people who are doing the legislative drafting process. Not always, but but sometimes it's unavailable to them. So when it comes to defining the public to whom these statutes apply may be in the best position to help inform its construction. And she she talks more about that in, in a book and in articles that I've cited in the paper. But standpoint theory essentially explains how public-driven and public-centric drafting can best meet the needs of those very same people who will then be accessing the statute and who will also have the statute in a way applied to them by by a decision maker. And then for uh, the expanded capabilities approach, Professor Amartya Sen is an economist. And this approach, which is sometimes called the capabilities approach, it's sometimes called the capability framework. It's all centered on this idea of human capacity. I think the background to understanding this is that Professor Sen is a development economist. So the whole the whole ethos of his theories come from trying to better understand and promote human development. And what I was trying to do was see if I could draw a parallel to not human development in the law, but human access to to the law. And I know it's not a perfect parallel because there are many differences between economic development and and law, but what I what I really want to focus on in his theory is that he focuses a lot on this idea of the availability of a meaningful choice. And he discusses, you know, what can a meaningful choice do for a person who, in his context, wants to emerge from poverty 
and wants to develop economically. And what I was trying to do was see, okay, can we apply that same idea of a meaningful choice to the context of administrative law? And so what Professor Sen says, you know, the best way for a person to act on their agency is to have a wide range of meaningful choices. Choices to join the market in a specific way is something that he talks about a lot. So for me, I was like, okay, this idea of a capability, a human capability to enter into a system, we can try to apply that to entering into or opting into an adjudicative system. And the way I can tie this all together is by saying, the only way I argue that that somebody can can have that meaningful choice is if the choice is one that they can understand. And two, if it's not just the only choice, if there are other options available to them, and they have the information necessary to make that choice to decide, okay, do I want to pursue this human rights complaint, and perhaps opt into an adjudicative system that is founded upon you know, we can we can frame it as uh, adversarial. Or do I want to perhaps choose a different process? And I know that if you if you've looked at ILT, which I know you have, they have a whole host of other forms of justice, right, that we can access that aren't necessarily adversarial, and aren't necessarily adjudicated in that way. So that was kind of how I, I tried to transpose an economist's theory about human capability onto this legal framework. I think in this context, it was just an interesting idea to explore. <laughs> Definitely a very interesting idea. And I do think that you do a very good job of, of drawing that parallel. This next question is probably going to touch on the similar things that you just said, but I'll, I guess I'll ask it in case there was something else that you wanted to add. And I guess you'll have to bear with me as I awkwardly read. Um, so in your paper, you say, quote, within a person-centered, meaningful approach to access to justice, what matters for fair outcomes and fair processes are the paths to justice or legal journeys people take, and not so much or only the robustness of the legal services available to them, end quote. I'm from the North, I'm from the Northwest Territories, and I think I have definitely always thought of access to justice or the issues with access to justice in um, sort of that scarcity framework and have thought that our solution really is just to get more lawyers out there. Um, and I think in reading your paper, that made me realize that that is the tip of the iceberg, or that's very much like a, almost a reactionary uh, response to the access to justice issue. For you, what should meaningful encompass in the context of access to justice? I'm really glad that you asked me this question, because this is something I thought a lot about when writing the paper. And I almost felt that I had to caveat a lot of what I was saying, because it's such a particular type of access to justice and meaningful, as I'll, as I'll explain, has a particular significance here, but you know, it may not necessarily hold that same meaning for a, a different person, a person who isn't me. So at the risk of repeating a lot of what I said in my last answer, I think I'll just canvas a few of the thoughts that you shared. And I'm really glad that you did, because I think the starting point here with the paper, but also this idea of meaningful access to justice is something that I've encountered a lot in my brief life in the law, which is this difference between de jure and de facto. And that what I would want and what I'm hoping to get at is that the access is not just a de jure access. It's a de facto access. You know, I think what I'm what I'm emphasizing is that it can't be a hollow choice. And I think in the paper, 
what I'm arguing is that meaningful access to justice means reimagining the content of the access and focusing on whether the claimant has the chance to make a real informed choice. So access not just being this entity exists or these decision-making bodies exist. Um, And I think that this idea also applies to consultation. And that's been another theme we've talked about a lot, you know, and actually considering the contributions from community groups, from experts, from people who have lived or been intimately part of this process, that's meaningful. That's a meaningful form of, of access to justice and defining terms and and circumscribing legislative concepts in a way that bears all of that in mind. And I know it's a big task. It's a big ask. But I think that by making those big asks, hopefully we can make small changes. This is also something we talked about just before, but I think it's really important for me to emphasize it here. Um, And there's a whole part of the paper about this, but I take it pretty seriously. And I think it's this idea of a kind of access and a kind of justice, because, you know, what is meaningful can look different to different people. Justice means a lot of different things and access can also look very different depending on who you are, what part of the country you're in, what you're seeking from the process. Your paper uses the definition of systemic discrimination as an example of how we can revamp our definitions in legislation. And so I was curious if you happen to have any other uh, definitions that you thought would benefit from a similar overhaul. I think the legal world, lawyers, scholars, students, the judiciary, we're always grappling with how to better define the terms that we use. At least I think the people in the profession that I've been lucky enough to interact with have been preoccupied by that. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future of, of our profession, especially when it comes to questions of ensuring that the definitions reflect our social realities. And I think we see that those conversations happening even at our highest court. A decision that comes to mind right away is Kirkpatrick. Um, I won't go into it too much because it's a criminal law decision that has a lot going on and there's a lot that that can be read and listened to. I've listened to a podcast recently about Kirkpatrick, but part of that big case was talking about consent and the idea of consent. And it's, I think, just a term that, like many others, changes as society changes and, and comes to terms with, okay, what does that actually mean on the ground for people who not only are survivors of sexual violence, but also for the accused, because we can't forget that in any criminal trial, there are, you know, fundamental protections for the accused. And how can a definition straddle both those equally valid um, experiences? I know that's not a full answer. And I and I, I feel like I'm not in the best position to give a full answer because I'm, I'm not a criminal law expert. I love criminal law, but I'm still learning. But what I will do is I'll take this opportunity to highlight a definition that I think really stood out to me. And it's the definition of Indigenous homelessness in Canada, which was written by Jesse Thistle. I talk about it a little bit in the paper, and he wrote it in collaboration with a number of other individuals across Canada, elders, other people who have lived through homelessness, and the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness. And to me, it's a model for how to define something thoughtfully and contextually. 
I really encourage listeners to check it out. If you just Google Canadian Observatory on Homelessness or even the definition of Indigenous homelessness, you'll be able to read the report. And Jesse Thistle, in compiling and writing that report, combines consultation with research and lived experience to produce, I think, a really beautiful document. It's so thought out to the point that even the colors that are used in the in the report have significance. It's kind of like a model document for for sharing the work that went into defining this term and the the facets, the myriad of facets that exist when you're trying to define something like indigenous homelessness or systemic discrimination or consent. I guess then, because you mentioned Jesse Thistle, maybe we'll skip because I had noticed that you'd cited him a few times and I just happened to be reading his memoir at the moment. So um, it just sparked my interest. And I was curious if you're a fan of his work and if maybe there was anyone else in the paper that you'd cited that you admire. Yeah, I am a huge fan of Jesse Thistle's and I'm so glad that you brought up his memoir because I read it when I arrived in Yukon. It was the first book I read when I got there. I think this is a a fun little anecdote, but when I arrived in Yukon, we were still kind of deep in the pandemic. I went there kind of at a weird time where I had just gotten my first vaccine, but you had to wait for a period in between to get the second one. So my plan was to get the second one in Yukon and I did, but because I had only had one, I had to do quarantine for two weeks. And so I decided to quarantine on this farm just outside of Whitehorse. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. I met this woman named Eva Stalin, who I came to learn is just this giant in Yukon. Like everybody knows her because she's just been around for such a long time. And she's such a big part of the community in Whitehorse. I should say she's a giant in Whitehorse. I'm not sure everybody knows her in Yukon, but in Whitehorse, everybody knew her. (laughs) And so while I was there and I was in my quarantine, I was reading Jesse Thistle's memoir. And I think it was just the combination of his poetry and his writing and arriving in this new place and being in this environment I'd never been in. I was very excited. I was very humbled. And when I finished the book, I just felt that I wanted to reflect on it in some way. And it ended up happening that I could include it in this paper, which was really special. It came together in a really nice way. I hope one day I can see him speak or perform poetry or something because he is incredible. Um, There are a lot of people I admire that I've cited in in the paper, the economists I've mentioned, Professor Shepard, but somebody that I want to highlight is a colleague of mine whose name is Frank Nasca, and they wrote an article that I cite (laughs) called Jurisdiction and Access to Justice, an Analysis of Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario Issued Notices of Intent to Dismiss. And their paper effectively talks about dismissals. Um, and they do a really interesting qu- like quantitative analysis of dismissals that took place at the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal. And their paper was recently published in the Canadian Journal of Administrative Law and Practice. This person really inspires me because they are an administrative law nerd through and through, self-proclaimed. <laughs> and, um, and I worked with them this past summer at uh, a law firm in Toronto named Collier Roland, and we became very close. And while I was 
editing this paper and kind of getting it into submission-ish shape, uh, they were integral in helping me edit it and and think through especially the administrative law and practice side of the paper. Uh, so I just wanted to shout them out because I really admire them. Um, and they are somebody that I will be going to for human rights and administrative law advice and questions probably for my whole life. So I guess my last question that's maybe more paper oriented is probably a bit biased because I'm from the North, um, but I, I really wanted to highlight this. Um, so you said in your paper, quote, while Canadians often look to the populous provinces as a model for governance, this case study illustrates that the nation can learn something from its northern territories. And I was like snapping my fingers when I read that. So I was just curious if you happen to know of anything in particular that uh, makes the territories uniquely positioned to to lead on certain legal issues. Definitely. But I, I don't want to proclaim to be somebody who can best answer this question because I only lived in Yukon for a short time. And I think maybe you or, or somebody else who has been part of the legal community in Yukon or NWT or Nunavut for much longer than me would be able to say something of a lot more value. But I think like, like I recently listened to your podcast with Justice Bonswin. And in that podcast, something that really stood out to me was the way that all three of you were talking about your experiences and how one's experiences really allows one to be a consultant or even like sometimes a decision maker because one can speak in the first person about things that they have gone through that are now being replicated or mirrored or echoed in the law. Um, and as Jesse Thistle says, academics, to a certain extent, can only talk and write about something. But in the context that they were writing, they said, I lived it. And if you've lived it, I think you have this unique, unique outlook. So for people who have lived and worked in, in the territories, I think they can totally speak to this. Something that came to mind, especially as it concerns the North, is the Yukon's history of land claim and self-governance agreements with First Nations. I learned while I was there that 11 out of 14 First Nations in Yukon are self-governing. Given that they have this unique, rich history of negotiating these agreements, I think that the rest of Canada, certainly some southern provinces can look to to that process and the outcomes uh, as as an example. I think now maybe we'll transition to questions about the editing process, specifically why you decided to submit your paper for publication and why you decided to submit to appeal law review. I had never had anything of mine published really before. I think in undergrad, I had the opportunity to submit some papers I've written to student journals. And, um, you know, I've written an article here and there in a newspaper, like a student news newspaper. But um, I wrote this paper, as I mentioned earlier, for a class. And it was actually the professor of the class. Her name is Professor Nandini Ramanujam. She encouraged me to submit this paper for publication somewhere because she told me that she really liked reading it. And she she was really pivotal in encouraging me to publish this because I don't think I would have done it without someone's encouragement. <laughs> so so that was sort of the way the seed was planted. And then I started looking around at different journals to see where this paper could find a home, I suppose. And I was also considering, okay, where would a paper about northern Canada be appreciated, perhaps not only by the editorial board, but also by the readership. And when I was in Yukon, I actually right after went 
down to BC to to visit some friends. And I hadn't been to the West Coast very much in my life. But after summer 2021, I can confidently say that I've fallen in love with the West Coast. So that sort of thought of, okay, maybe a journal from British Columbia might be a good idea because there seems to be a close relationship between Yukon and BC geographically, but also because I think there's lots of back and forth, for lack of a better word, between the two parts of the country. I came across Appeal because a few colleagues of mine from McGill had published papers in the journal in the past. And then I looked into the journal and I immediately knew that this was where I wanted to submit because I, first of all, was really impressed that the journal is entirely run by students. It was like a students for students publication. That was the impression I got that, you know, students from the University of Victoria were supporting their fellow Canadian law student colleagues by reading and choosing to publish some of their work and helping them edit it and get it into publication shape. So I think I really liked that because to me, it was a sign of collegiality, I think, and sort of a symbol maybe of of the ethos of the journal, that it's a journal that encourages students to publish their work. And it's not just reserved for professors or academics. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that that was the impression that you have of appeal, because that, that is definitely what we're going for. You had said earlier that you have worked on journals. How did you find the editing process? You might have a unique perspective on it as, as being sort of an insider. This process has been so pleasant. I have loved working with, I've worked mostly with Shermaine, but then there were a couple of other editors um, and people involved with the journal who helped me earlier on. It has truly been a pleasure, um, especially because with you and also with Shermaine, you both have some ties to the territories. And so I felt that from communicating with both of you and working with both of you, that my paper I think my paper might have resonated a little bit. So that was really special. In terms of the process itself, another thing that I was really grateful for was the different forms of feedback I received. I was familiar with the peer review process because I've been on the other end. It's excellent when you get to work with reviewers who are as conscientious as the anonymous reviewers that I received feedback from through the journal. They really took the time to provide specific comments on various parts of my argument that I think I hadn't even contemplated. So, and I suppose that's the point of the peer review process. And I think maybe this is what I'm saying isn't novel at all, because lots of people go through this every time they publish something. But for me, it was all very new. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed that very much. And I thought that what they said to me was very valid. It was very specific. And the way they communicated it was very kind and respectful. So I, uh, I have only good things to say about the comments I received from the board, from the reviewers, from everybody. I think that Appeal is a really cool journal, and I'm lucky to be part of it in a small way. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you, you've had such a positive experience. So we're nearing the end. I guess I wanted to ask you if you had anyone, you did mention, I think it was Frank Nasca, um, who had sort of assisted, but if there was anyone else that you maybe wanted to thank who had helped you with the research of your paper or the writing of your paper? Wow, yes, I definitely have some people I want to thank. I feel like I'm doing like an Oscars speech. <laughs> I'm like, okay, here we go. I think a lot of people's time and help went into making it really great on top of just everybody at Appeal. 
Um, I want to thank Professor Ramanujam, who is the professor who taught my human rights class, and she's also the director of the human rights program. She was the one who decided to send me to Yukon, and in a way, she changed my life by doing that. So Professor Ramanujam, for sure. I mentioned David Matias before. He also was kind enough to read my paper a few different times and provide me comments uh, and feedback to get it ready for publication. My friend Frank, who I mentioned. I also have to thank Riley, who was somebody who helped me edit this paper as I submitted it to a working paper series as part of the human rights uh, internship program before I submitted it to appeal. So thank you to Riley. And I think that's it. <laughs> All right. So last question then for anyone who hasn't read the paper yet and for whatever reason or on the fence, is there anything that maybe you want to say um, to capture their attention? Why should they read your paper first out of all the appeal journal papers? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, it's a big question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I think my paper in particular, something I will say is a theme that's come up a couple of times is that there isn't a lot of scholarship about the territories. I think there's definitely some and some that is also perhaps underappreciated or doesn't really see the spotlight. And so I hope that in publishing this paper, people will be able to interact a little bit with the North in a, in a way that they may not have previously. Hopefully, it encourages people to learn and read more about the territories and read scholarship coming from scholars who are from the territories or who have lived there for a long time. Hopefully this paper will provide that encouragement to be curious and look more into what academic thought is coming out of the North and what we can learn from, from that academic thought. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Starry and Decisive. I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for joining us. We will likely have one more episode sometime in the summer and possibly a second episode um, that's maybe still up in the air, but I know I speak for both Tom and Patrick when I say that being a part of Starry and Decisis this season has been fantastic and we really enjoyed having the opportunity to engage with um, the student body and also just the larger legal community out there. So thanks again and wishing you all best. This episode of Starry and Decisis was recorded on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen peoples. I'd also like to recognize the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples, whose relationship with the land is both contemporary and historic. <laughs>